Welcome to the Center for a New American Securities NATSEC Women podcast series. Last year, we started a project on getting new audiences to think and talk about issues of gender, inclusivity, and national security. Schedule an event with gender in the title, and you can guarantee it is 95% women talking to other women in the audience about women's issues. So we tried other ways. Some audiences were receptive, some weren't. Some were frustrated we were making a big deal out of a topic they thought was closed. Asked and answered, move on. But among the women we know, it didn't feel nearly as clear cut. So we're bringing you right to the source one-on-one candid conversations with women in national security about their careers, their experience, their advice, and their lessons. Here's their stories. My name is Lauren DeYoung-Shulman. I'm a senior fellow here at Center for New American Security, and we are continuing our Women in National Security podcast series here today with Mara Carlin, who is a longtime colleague of mine, but who now works at the Johns Hopkins Sites School, where she more or less runs the world, but probably has a better title <laughs> that she can share with you. Mara and I were colleagues back in Office of Secretary of Defense and the Undersecretary for Policy years ago and have worked together on and off uh, several times over the last decade. So I'll let her give you a little bit more about her background. And so we'll start off by who are you? What are you doing in national security? What makes you awesome in this field? Thank you. It is such a treat to be here. Who am I? So right now I work at Johns Hopkins Ice as the Associate Professor of Strategic Studies and Associate Director there. And I'm also at Brookings as a non-resident senior fellow. Over the last decade and a half or so, I spent about 10 years in the Pentagon working for a number of different secretaries of defense on all sorts of issues from Middle East politics and security to building defense strategy and budgets to trying to figure out what future wars might look like and how we make sure the U.S. military can fight and win those. That's those some very simple, very easy jobs. <laughs> that, that's great. As part of this podcast series, we have been talking to a lot of women about, about their experience, about what it means to them to be a woman in national security. But something that has struck me over and over again about this conversation is what is actually distinctly important about how a woman approaches national security work compared to a man? Is there a particular value in what a woman does, says, or thinks compared to what men do? Or are we over-homogenizing women's experiences by even asking that question? What's the real value in having this conversation? So what's interesting is that we're having the conversation to begin with. Mm -hmm. I think when you and I first came to Washington, longer than we care to remember, Mm -hmm. this was not even on the agenda. Mm -hmm. So the fact that it is, even with some disgruntlement and frustration, is pretty meaningful. All that said, I think anyone with a different perspective from the majority is going to bring something to the conversation. Mm -hmm. So whether you're sitting at the table as one of the only females or as one of the only first-generation Americans, whatever it is will change your place in that system and the views that you're bringing to it. Absolutely. It's interesting. I notice how we so often criticize when we see a panel that a think tank is hosting or a media panel that has only men that are uh, giving advice to a journalist in some way. But it's hard to see inside the walls of the Pentagon or the NSC and know that there are only men at the table or there's only one woman or that there are the women are sitting on the back bench. Uh, so I think it's it's um, it's critical for people to have that this going through their mind of what value a, a more diverse panel, a more diverse meeting, a more diverse people, a set of people sitting around a table might actually bring to an issue. 
So as you pointed out, we have been in Washington for slightly longer than we care to admit and have really made some amazing progress in our careers and seen other women who have advanced rapidly. But at the same time, I think that there is still a view that there are not enough women at the top echelons of government uh, in the national security field or that there are things that hold them back. And I'm curious, in your experience, you know, what are the blockages that keep women from advancing to more senior levels in the national security field? Is it a certain career points? Are there certain sub-communities where they may struggle versus others? Or is there anything that you think that could be done about it to be able to change that dynamic? Absolutely. I think there's two elements that really strike me. One are there are these sort of inflection points, if you will. I think of these as like the plucking moment mm-hmm. where someone at a more senior level looks across the landscape of really smart people working for them or around them and says, you're the one who's going to get this opportunity. And that opportunity often leads to a cohort, leads to other types of opportunities, and they are on a certain trajectory. So what we can do with regard to that dynamic is ensuring that those senior individuals at least have this on their list, Mm -hmm. right? As they are looking at who the future should be of their service, of their kind of civilian cohort, you name it, this should be on the list of criteria. It Mm -hmm. should not be the determining factor, but they should be careful not to have ducks choose ducks because that's a pretty natural phenomenon. So that's one piece. The other piece of it is sort of what we do to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And the kind of perfect case study I'll offer here is it was always astonishing to me how when I would ask people to write the first version of their evaluation, generally the females would write something like, working with a group of people together, Mm -hmm. we did X or Y. And oftentimes the men would write, I did X or Y, which usually came to the conclusion of I made Middle East peace on my own. (laughs) And what I would do with these is then sit with each of them and help them understand what they were really conveying. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting how often folks weren't cognizant of what that was, of how it came across and what that meant when they would become senior leaders. You know, whether it's people kind of taking themselves out of the game through how they're censoring what they've done, how they've described it a lack of willingness to even try for opportunities, thinking, look, I can't meet all the qualifications, so I shouldn't even try, or what if I get it, and then X, and then Y, and what have you. And so not sort of censoring oneself and being willing to just sort of try, being open to that serendipity. We were just talking about resume editing a few minutes ago, and I absolutely guarantee that going back to my resume from five years ago, every single line started with, you know, as part of a team or working as a group or in support of somebody else, just like that, that qualifier that gets in our own way over and over again. So Mara, you've been in academia, the civilian career world, and you were a political appointee in the Obama administration. And for all that, all of those qualify in some way as national security, the experience of that in my, you know, in my time in government is very different in terms of how you are, you are treated, how you're viewed and how you actually, you know, act on a day-to-day basis in your role. But from your perspective, you know, how has the perception of being a woman in the field change across those sectors? And did you, as you moved from sector to sector, did you take away any lessons from one to the other in terms of how you're perceived? Absolutely. And it changes from sector, but also within sectors Mm -hmm. as your role in that sector evolves. So it is one thing to be the whippersnapper 26-year-old in the State Department or the Defense Department and be the only female. Mm -hmm. It's another thing to be 
the talented, bright 36-year-old who's now giving guidance, who's now playing a leadership role. And I think how sort of folks respond to you differs based on your position within that. Um, I've seen a number of different dynamics amongst those sectors. So when I look at the academic world, mm-hmm. even when I look at kind of male and female students, the way that they'll address their professors, often being much more comfortable referring to male professors as professor or doctor and female professors by their first, first name. name. Yeah, absolutely. The way I'll see sometimes female students less willing to ask for a reference or a recommendation or an office call because they just don't want to bother you. Yep. That all absolutely is uh, is relevant within this. And I think as a leader in any of these entities, you need to overdo it. Mm-hmm. You need to absolutely push people, you know, the sort of line you can't over communicate. You can't tell them too many times, I'm here for you. If you need help at some point, and then frankly, just being cognizant of what's going on with them, mm-hmm. seeing are they debating between two opportunities? How can you help them think through that and make the decision that's best for them in their future? So one question that I've asked a lot of our interviewees is how we transition from the very important conversation of what is it like to be a woman in national security to simply a discussion of national security that happens to have female participants. And I've personally just struggled with how would I recognize that moment? What can I do to bring it about? Or will even be something that I participate in? Is it going to be something that's left to people who come into government or into national security 10 years, 20 years from now? I'm curious on your views on any of those, you know, what advice you might have or how do we make that transition? I think part of it probably is being cognizant that this exists. Mm -hmm. And frankly, the fact that it's a conversation now helps with that cognizance in a way that it didn't probably for us you know, two decades ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know this was never kind of on my list and sort of the older I've gotten, the more I've realized it, it's a part of the landscape. Yep. Uh, recognize it, don't accept it, but be, be aware um, and, and do, it, do what you can to try to counter it, whether by kind of mentoring people, by um, kind of jumping at opportunities that maybe, you know, one would be a little too nervous to take, but try to counter it as much as possible. The best way we can counter it is by filling the space. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily by saying don't do X or don't do Y, or you have to have X number of people at your conference, otherwise it's not diverse. It's by having enough people in leadership positions who recognize that when I'm hiring, that when I'm pushing people forward and giving them opportunities, have I thought a little bit about ideological diversity? Have I thought a little bit about... Um, you know, depending on where you are, kind of diversity based on based on geography. Have I have I thought about what they look like, um, where they come from? Have mm-hmm. I thought about those sorts of things? And what I'd like to think is, if we see what say the Pentagon looked like a year ago, and if we see what it looked like, when did we start there? A long time ago, the early aughts, right? <laughs> two thousand five. Okay, or so. <laughs> right. So two two thousand four, two thousand five. That's pretty different, mm-hmm. and. That has gone hand in hand with the start of this conversation. So I'm hopeful that 10 years from now, 15 years from now, this will be much, much lower as a conversation topic. Well, Mara, thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. This has been a fabulous conversation and we look forward to continuing the series.